There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 live march 20th from the edge at hudson yards in new york city Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Elvis. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that was constantly slipping through his fingers. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 16 would be the number of months that it took for Pigpen and the Grateful Dead's digs at 710 Ashbury to go from a countercultural mecca to a commodified tourist haven. Another two would be the number of cities the Grateful Dead would record in while searching for the perfect sound to complement their musical evolution. An evolution Pigpen struggled to keep pace with. Two more would be the number of proficient musicians becoming full-time members of the Grateful Dead, the band Pigpen helped start, rendering Pigpen's musical input near obsolete. Another three would be the number of weeks he would consider his future while taking a sabbatical from the group. And four would be the number of years he'd have left to live when he finally accepted that he was no longer in control of the group that he had created, all totaling 27. On this, our fifth episode of season five, commodified tourist havens searching for the sound, becoming obsolete in Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
The driver of the Greyhound bus was being paid by the hour, so he took his time creeping through the winding streets of San Francisco. The occupants didn't seem to mind. They had no destination. This was a pleasure cruise. A group of senior citizens and middle-class businessmen, all dressed in suits, eagerly flipped through the pamphlets they had been handed when they stepped on board. They didn't know what to expect or what they might see. The conservative newspapers made it seem like they were about to witness the decline of Western civilization. Nothing was off the table when it came to the depths of debauchery. The passengers opened the pamphlets to find a dictionary of terms, a special collection of words used by the locals, stoned, trip, speed, straight. This was how these people spoke, how they thought, how they lived. It all seemed so foreign to these buttoned up recipients of pension benefits and owners of stock options. Surely people couldn't live like this. Had they no sense at all? As the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco came into view, the scene outside was getting stranger. The tour guide droned on about the dangerous citizens walking the streets, separated from the passengers by only the safety of the Greyhound sidewall. The inhabitants of this area were the ones who claimed that the bus passengers, the upper middle class, were ruining the country. Impossible. These freaks on the streets, they were the invaders. Dirty hippies. The Greyhound was the vehicle of choice for the Hippie Hop bus tour, which had started running in 1967, just as the summer of love was reaching its peak. It was an effort to commodify what plastered nearly every front page in America. This trip, the bus trip, promised to be well worth the cost of admission. The passengers weren't like the people they ogled on the streets. The passengers would never tune in and drop out, more judgmental than curious. They ogled the citizens of the hate like animals in a zoo. They couldn't buy into what was happening because it would contradict everything they had ever been taught and told. The very concepts they modeled their entire lives around. They reflected the thoughts of most of America's population. Cynicism was far easier than a long, hard look in the mirror. A few blocks away, Pigpen sat in a bathrobe on the front steps of 710 Ashbury with an acoustic guitar across his lap. He stubbed out a cigarette and lit another one. An empty beer can sat on the ground next to him. Midday had given way to afternoon, and Pigpen was just trying to get a little fresh air, pick a little guitar, and chase off the last remaining hurts of his hangover before heading to the evening's gig. As the cool San Francisco breeze blew through his long black hair, he inhaled deeply on his cigarette. He tilted his head back, eyes closed. It was a rare moment of peace, one that was becoming harder and harder to find in the hate these days. And then it was shattered. And if you look to the right, we have, oh, oh look, there's one on the porch now. Pig stared at the tour bus that had planted itself in front of the old Victorian home. Faces pressed up against the glass, some smiling, others horrified, all of them completely out of place. Pig gave them an obligatory quick smile. He quickly turned and entered the house where he could drop the forced smile and the act altogether. He opened the fridge and cracked another beer. Just then, a knocking came on the door. Here we go again, another reporter. This was becoming all too common. It seemed like an everyday occurrence. A constant stream of local and national reporters flooded the hate. 710 Ashbury specifically. They wanted to know what was happening in the most happening spot in the country. Time Magazine, Life Magazine, they want to know what's going on at 710 Ashbury. Fucking unreal. 
When Pig wasn't answering questions about where he got his bandana, he was answering questions about what he thought a hippie was. Hippie? Who the hell knew what that meant? Pigpen didn't come up with that word. They weren't hippies. They were just people. But the questions never stopped. Even ones about Pigpen being the star of the Grateful Dead. His face was the only one on the band's merchandise, after all. Pigpen balked. He was being cast as the Pied Piper of the hate. There were, of course, earnest journalists who were actually interested in the San Francisco sound and scene, but that didn't sell magazines. And the hate wasn't only overrun with journalists looking for scandalous front-page fodder. It was also overrun with young people there for the wrong reasons, on the wrong track, and headed for the hate. The word was out about the summer of love, and everyone wanted to light up and have themselves a ball. It was as if they thought just arriving in San Francisco would enlighten them. Like that shit happened by osmosis. Pigpen had been living this life as far back as he could remember, and the Grateful Dead weren't some experiment in a cage for the public to gawk at. They were artists, just trying to create, and they'd been living their art. Palo Alto, the Acid Test, Olimpali, Lagunitas, now the hate. Each stage of the trip lifted the group to a new level, influenced their direction, altered their minds, and their existence in San Francisco was just the continued pursuit of that life. To live deeply, as Henry David Thoreau would say, to suck out all the marrow. This wasn't an overnight operation, and yet the arriving masses thought it was. They infiltrated the bubble of the hate, and they did as many drugs as they could. This overeager population didn't pair well with the fact that those same streets were becoming increasingly violent. Rape, robbery, and murder was quickly becoming more commonplace than love and kindness. The San Francisco police weren't amused. They already had their hands full with civil rights marches and Vietnam protests. Now they had to deal with an overdrugged overpopulation. The counterculture mecca of the world was crumbling. The sunny side of the street was starting to get dark with all the negative vibes, and it felt as though the hate's bubble would burst at any moment. The dead, too, were quickly reaching the end of their rope. This first album had barely broken into the charts, peaking at number 73, and there was not a hit single to be found on either side of the LP. Despite a commercial flop and the frustrations that were building around their beloved hate's facelift, the Grateful Dead still felt a duty to the streets of San Francisco. And there was nothing like a handful of free shows to help mellow things out. But these were some bad vibes that even a free show couldn't mellow out. Warner Brothers Records, their record label, wouldn't quit hassling them. It had been nearly five months since the Dead's debut record was released. A follow-up was due within the year. Moves had to be made. Pigpen was always able to level out wherever the Dead went, but he was starting to get comfortable with his life in the hate, spending time with V, playing old blues tunes and drinking at local bars before performing at night. He was settled in, but Jerry and Phil didn't settle. They were already on to the next phase of the Grateful Dead's evolution. The Dead didn't stand still, and they certainly weren't in the business of being sentimental. Once something stopped serving them, they went in a new direction. What could Pigpen do about a new direction? Even if he was a prominent member of the group, he was but one voice of five. And by the fall of 1967, that direction would begin a never-ending revolving door of band members, altering the dead sound and career forever. But first, a respite from the madness was needed. The dead had to get out of San Francisco.
The sun beat down on Pigpen's face. He sat in a long chair on a platform overlooking the water, holding a bottle of bourbon. The dead's gear sat next to him. His long black hair was still wet. It hung over his stomach, which was continuing to increase in size. He lifted the bottle to his lips and took in the scene. The Russian River, 100 miles north of San Francisco, was an ideal slice of solitude that the Grateful Dead were in desperate need of. And the place was paradise. San Francisco was a drag. Bill Kurtzman's friend offered the group this spot, a large house surrounded by several cabins right on the river. How could they say no? A steady stream of topless women floated by on rafts. A fleet of canoes provided endless hours of entertainment. There was a sense of seclusion here that the dead hadn't experienced since the Lagunitas days. They could stretch their creative legs. Pig studied the lyric sheet in front of him, verses that Jerry's friend Robert Hunter sent a few months back. Robert Hunter was a fellow California native, a friend and collaborator of Jerry's in the Palo Alto days. Robert took off to both Los Angeles and New Mexico, volunteering as a psychedelic test subject for the CIA's top-secret MK-Ultra program and then battling both methamphetamine and speed addictions. But Robert never stopped writing, and he maintained his friendship with Jerry. Jerry constantly attempted to convince Robert to return home. He raved about the dead as bait, and Robert instead sent lyrics. And now, from 1,000 miles away, Robert Hunter had made his first meaningful contribution to the Grateful Dead. The lyrics described a reptile basking in the sun and drinking whiskey. Pigpen could dig it. Shit, Pig could be that reptile. It was the first time Pig's style perfectly suited an original work by the dead, so he added a verse of his own. The verse was inspired by the serene setting the group had found on the river in Olympali and in Lagunitas. The dead had already been working out the music, a big, fat, bluesy jam. One by one, the rest of the band slowly made their way out to the platform to begin the day's work. A funky drum, a raunchy simple guitar lick, and Pig's sensual bluesy lyrics slipping and sliding over it all. The song Alligator was coming together, with Pigpen once again placed at the center of the band. Pigpen felt like he could live on that river forever. But Warner Brothers needed their album, and so just as the Olympali and Lagunitas experiences ended, so too did the Russian River excursion. The Grateful Dead found that the tense scene they left behind in San Francisco had become downright grim. There were already too many people in the city, but now the con men had moved in as well. Oregano sold as grass, aspirin pawned off as acid, and meanwhile, the people who did know what they were buying had moved away from psychedelics to a darker selection of drugs. Speed, cocaine, heroin. The summer of love had peaked and was now slouching towards something deeply sinister. Pig wasn't about the acid, he wasn't about the weed, and he was certainly not about the newest narcotics presence in the neighborhood. When the Grateful Dead's manager, Rock Scully, had an overdose scare upstairs at 710 Ashbury, Pigpen found himself seconds away from killing the guy who had supplied the smack. Pigpen felt something dark creeping in. And as the hate became more complicated to navigate, so too did the Grateful Dead's music. In September of 1967, a second drummer joined the group, Mickey Hart. Mickey had just finished up a stint in New York as a session drummer after being discharged from the Air Force. Mickey's style was straight ahead, no nonsense. Schooled in military drumming technique, he kept the train on time. 
reducing the capacity for meandering raps or musical lines. You know, pig pen's bread and butter. Mickey also allowed the group to experiment with time signatures not commonly found in rock and roll or blues music. But while a majority of the band relished the opportunity to expand their musical horizons, Pigpen once again found himself on the outs. Pigpen didn't just play the blues, he lived the blues. But the blues didn't fuck around with time signatures. Those complex time signatures also gave way to longer, more experimental pieces. Pigpen could no longer show up to rehearsal after a few stiff drinks, and he would no longer have the luxury of nursing a bottle of bourbon while the group pieced together new compositions. Just as Pigpen thought he was getting a grasp on the Grateful Dead and the music they were playing, just when he thought he was contributing to the direction that the group was taking, everything turned on its head. Only days after Mickey joined, the band faced down that 30-year sentence for the Acapulco gold hash found at 710 Ashbury. It wasn't Pig's fucking stash. Pig cashed in his chips and folded on the full house. He knew things were going sideways. He and his girl V moved out of the Ashbury house and then eventually out of San Francisco entirely. But first, the entire band left San Francisco together, headed to LA to record their second album and fulfill their commitment to Warner Brothers. And they'd get to do it with an upper hand to their record company overlords. A clause in their contract allowed for unlimited time in the studio. Producer David Hassinger, who had rushed the dead through their first album, could tell right away that this time around would be different. The band spread out in the studio. Experimentation was king. The Beatles had just released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band that summer, pushing the envelope for what a band could do with studio space and how an album could sound. And the Grateful Dead endeavored to do the same. But just like their first effort, the sessions for the second album weren't going how the band had envisioned. They soon moved to New York for the confines of a more technically advanced studio. Their type A producer was quickly losing his patience with all the hippies in his control room. And then Bob Weir requested thick air to fill in the silent spaces of a record. Thick what? Thick air? Hassinger called it quits. These space cadets could do whatever the fuck they wanted. They had free reign of the studio and the label signed off on the whole thing. Hassinger had to get the hell out before they drove him insane. And in an instant, it was like someone hit a release valve. The pressure to perform on command to be not only precise, but concise, to have to kowtow to a producer standing over their shoulders, it all melted away. The Grateful Dead weren't collapsing under a claustrophobic studio environment. Instead, they explored the studio space. They took their time with the music. Pigpen nailed the lyrics for Alligator, and the Grateful Dead even decided to revive an old tune from 1965 called Caution, Do Not Stop on Tracks, another Pigpen lead vocal. And these two songs would make up the entire B-side of the album. An entire side for Pigpen's vocals. Damn, it was a throwback to the Palo Alto days. But there was a clear distinction between the songs Pigpen was leading and the songs he wasn't. Pigpen's songs were the dead from before. The other tunes sounded like a much different group. And this shift was only enhanced when the dead flew in Phil's old college buddy, Tom Constantine, to record some prepared piano parts for the A-side of the album. Tom was more proficient and sophisticated on the keys, bringing a style to the album that Pigpen could never provide. Creative madness ensued. The Grateful Dead destroyed microphones for seconds of audio, stuffed pianos full of quarters, hotboxed many of the studios they took up residence in. They took their time and told Joe Smith at Warner Brothers that they planned to mix in live recordings with studio recordings to achieve the right ambiance. 
By December, Smith was skeptical at best, and when producer David Hassinger's account of the group's behavior reached him, he was furious. This wasn't the Avalon Ballroom where the Grateful Dead lorded over a freaky scene of their own design. This wasn't a game. This was the big time. This was fucking Warner Brothers. Smith sent a letter to the band. He urged them to send their artwork ASAP and wrap up their recording. They were out of time. Tough shit. The record was going to be released in two months, whether they liked it or not. And furthermore, they all needed to grow up and stop behaving like stoned little pranksters. The Grateful Dead's response was brief. They wrote, fuck you, in giant letters on Joe Smith's letter and sent it right back to him. Nothing was going to stand in their way when it came to the development of their sound, not even Joe Smith. And if Pigpen's reduced role was beginning to get to him, it didn't outwardly show. Pigpen kept his head down, kept chugging, riding that train. But when you don't take the time to look up, you can miss all the warning signs. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex... Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of 
and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Pigpen stood behind the Hammond organ, flanked on either side by two massive Leslie speakers. He felt dwarfed behind the new instrument. His Vox organ was at least half the size and a far less complicated beast to boot. And the Hammond felt like a spaceship. It played like one too. Pigpen desperately tried to figure it out, but it was different. The fingerings, the layout, the levels, it was all so different. God damn it, this thing was too complicated in the music. That was becoming a beast within itself. Pigpen's head spun as the band jammed. Which drummer did he fall? Bill? Mickey? The music sounded like some advanced class back at Dana Morgan's music store. Did he have to, like, learn theory now? Was Jerry even doing that? Pigpen played it safe. He played what he knew, as simple as possible. He didn't want to stick out like a sore thumb, so he played lines that could easily be tucked away. Not that it was always easy to do so. The music was continuing to head in unpredictable directions, like some complicated math equation on a blackboard. Pigpen liked his math like he liked his music. Simple. The Grateful Dead had abandoned simplicity long ago. Pigpen couldn't wait to get into making the next record. Maybe it'd be something more his speed. Maybe he could find a way to... Shit, he was out of time again. Jerry stopped the jam. His eyes shot daggers into Pigpen. Jesus, Pig, did he even practice this? Pigpen bit his lip while Jerry berated him about spending his nights watching TV and drinking bourbon and not practicing. Pigpen didn't have a mean bone in his body. He just stood there and took it. Hell, it's not like Jerry was wrong. That's just who he was. The Grateful Dead picked up the song again. And they had been rehearsing for five, six, seven hours. Pigpen couldn't even tell anymore. The rehearsals had long ago turned into daily marathons, and now the music was becoming so complex that Pig was consistently losing his footing. Jerry and Phil's new musical aspirations had the band cruising around in deep space weaving in and out of cosmic musical motifs. Pigpen was firmly planted on Earth, watching helplessly as his band, now with two drummers, counterbalanced two time signatures that had arguably never existed anywhere else in the world of rock and roll before, at least as far as Pigpen knew. Pigpen's eyes glazed over. This other side of the Grateful Dead's coin, it was heady, rigid. It had too many frills. He was completely lost, and he wasn't alone. The jam broke down again. This time, Bob Weir was out of time and was the recipient of a patented Jerry Garcia death stare. Bobby's earnest energy and aggressive style wasn't clicking with the new direction either. Rehearsals came to a merciful end. Pigpen headed to the nearest bar to drink away his frustrations. As Rock Scully was heading out the door a few minutes later, Jerry called him back. They needed to talk. Jerry knew there was no easy way to approach the subject, so he came straight out with it. Listen, man, I got an assignment for you. Rock was all ears. I can't play with them anymore. Them as in Pigpen and Bobby. And it wasn't just Jerry. The rest of the band wanted them out. Pigpen and Bobby were holding the dead back musically and creatively. It was becoming a drag. Rock understood, right? It's not that Pigpen and Bobby couldn't play, rather that they couldn't play what the rest of the Grateful Dead were playing. A short meeting was arranged. Rock told the other four members of the dead to make their intentions known. Jerry, Phil, Bill, and Mickey all pirouetted around the subject. 
In typical Grateful Dead fashion, they had trouble giving anything a final decision or punctuation. The only thing clear to them was that the current structure of the group wasn't working. So rather than break up the band, Jerry, Phil, Bill, and Mickey formed a separate entity and began playing shows under the moniker Mickey and the Heartbeats. That's heart spelled H-A-R-T for Mickey Hart. Pigpen understood, but that didn't mean it didn't hurt like hell. He never told Jerry and the others how much it hurt, and after a few nights of heavy drinking, he got back in the saddle. He began lessons specifically aimed at how to play Hammond organ. He practiced day and night, getting the reps, drilling himself back into shape, ensuring that he'd be formidable enough to at least keep up with what was going on in the dead. As he continued to practice, the rest of the dead, minus Pig and Bobby, continued to perform as Mickey in the heartbeats. Pig feared that this was the moment he'd been dreading for a long time. The moment when his own band finally slipped through his fingers. And all the Hammond lessons in the world weren't going to fix that problem. He needed time. Time to re-examine his place in the Grateful Dead. Re-examine his place in the whole scene. And he took plenty of that time with his lady, V, who dried his tears. One night, however, the couple's roles were reversed. It was V who needed Pigpen's help. She returned home that night with a headache, a full-blown migraine, really. She could barely see straight. Only it wasn't a migraine. V was in the middle of having a stroke. She wound up in the hospital for emergency surgery. Pigpen sat by her bed, acting as her nurse, her physical therapist, and her main support system. One evening, Bobby and Jerry came by the hospital and gave V a quiet concert with acoustic guitars. The three members of the fractured group went back half a decade by this point, not just as bandmates, but as brothers. And that brotherhood superseded any musical rift. V lying in a hospital bed may or may not have been a catalyst, but it was the moment in which they all took a more lucid look at what was happening with the band. Though they didn't always outwardly show it, they all cared for each other. The band slowly and intentionally forgot about the details surrounding Pig and Bobby getting fired. They both seamlessly worked their way back into live sets with the band, who, for a time, staggered their shows with other appearances as the heartbeats before the Grateful Dead was back full-time. There was no joyous reunion, no comeback show. Pigpen and Bobby just reassimilated into the band. And although both had been practicing ferociously to get their chops up, Pig's sound still felt like filler at times. The unspoken truth that the Grateful Dead understood was this. If they were going to get where they wanted to go on their next album, their next evolution, they would need a more accomplished player than Pigpen to help them get there. Pigpen sipped his beer and peered around the room. It was filled to the brim with blonde models and middle-aged men in business suits. Most of these people had already drank the coffee, the coffee that was dosed with acid before the show. And pretty soon, most of these high-class scenester types would morph into saucer-eyed freaks. Not that Pigpen wasn't used to that. What he wasn't used to was the setting. The room wasn't just a room. It was a set in a Hollywood studio. And just 20 feet away, Jerry Garcia was yucking it up with Hugh Hefner in full Hef mode with a pipe, smoking jacket, and bow tie. 
just moments before the Grateful Dead were to perform on Hefner's syndicated show, Playboy After Dark. That was strange. A conversation between Jerry Garcia and Hugh Hefner. But it wasn't the strangest thing happening that evening. Jerry, followed by a camera, approached the stage where the rest of the Grateful Dead were waiting and took a seat. They began to play Mountains of the Moon, a folk song. This was one of the new directions in which the dead were heading. Jerry and Bob weaved acoustic guitars together while Jerry sang a gentle lyric. An elegant electric organ filled up the rest of the space in the tomb. Only this organ wasn't being played by Pigpen. Pigpen was watching from the far end of the stage, far from the focus of the cameras, far from the music, seated behind a selection of conga drums. Yes, he and Bob Weir had made their way back into the band. Yes, he and Bob had reconciled with the rest of the group, but Bob was sitting center stage playing with the clear spokesman of the band, and Pigpen, Pig was nowhere near the action. Pigpen wouldn't touch an organ at all that night, and he would play much less that entire year. Tom Constantine, Phil Lesh's friend who had sat in during the recording of Anthem of the Sun, was now the chief keys player for the Grateful Dead supplanting Pigpen in the month or so that he had been absent from the group. Pigpen couldn't deny Tom's talent. He had something Pigpen didn't have, and Pig knew it. He was self-aware enough to admit it. Pigpen would not be taking his job back from Tom. So Pigpen banged away at his congas as the dead broke into a lively rendition of St. Stephen. He watched from the sidelines, unaware if his playing was even having a positive effect on the sound of the band at all. That band, his band, was trucking ahead without any meaningful contribution from Pigpen, as if they didn't need him at all. At one point, the camera pans over to Pig, standing behind the congas, not even playing. His expression like he's coming to understand how the words that Bobby and Jerry have just delivered are a perfect summation of what's going on. One man gathers what another man spills. And as the dead played on, the scene around them became increasingly chaotic as the genteel playboy guests began to trip their brains out. The Grateful Dead kept their blinders on and hammered out a successful show. They were nothing if not professionals. They'd grow accustomed to the chaos surrounding them, just like Pigpen would grow accustomed to his new role. And that night would be a sign of things to come. It was clear that Tom was the missing piece that Jerry and Phil were looking for, and Pigpen wasn't about to fight it. He did what he always did. Didn't make a big deal out of it. Didn't confront anyone. And that wasn't Pigpen's style. Pig's style was a big, hard, and warm demeanor. He became fast friends with Tom Constantin. Pig turned Tom onto music he had never heard before. Boogie players like Albert Ammons and Pete Johnson. And Pig walked Tom through the inevitable dosings he experienced while on tour with one of the most dosed bands in rock history. And they shared keyboard duties on stage, but Pigpen's reduced role as an instrumentalist freed him up to focus more on vocals during live sets. Live on stage was where Pigpen shined. He could howl out an inspired good morning little schoolgirl, turn on your love light, and of course, alligator getting lost in the performance. And as the dead prepared to wrap up their final studio album, the dopamine highs of the live experience almost allowed Pigpen to imagine a world where he only sang lead vocals almost allowed him to forget he'd have to work harder to stay relevant within the confines of the group. Almost allowed him to forget about his shrinking presence in the band. It almost felt like the next step in the evolution of the Grateful Dead. Almost. I'm Jake Brennan, and this 
is the 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Seth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 you know what i'm saying like it could have been like easier and a lot of people have asked me like how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline 